Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you all so much for joining today. Uh, really appreciate all being here. My name is Jamil Jaffer. I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Amson Scalia Law School. This is the kickoff event for our Technology, Innovation, and National Security Program, a program that we plan to launch as part of our NSI 2020 initiative. Of course, with COVID, this will be our NSI 2020-2021 initiative. Uh, we are honored uh, to here today to have uh, Congressman Jim Langevin uh, and David Sanger uh, to, uh, to kick off this 2020-2021 uh, this, uh, this initiative for us. Uh, and to engage in a conversation about some of the key issues around technology innovation and national security. Obviously, the timing is, is excellent with uh, House hearings going on today uh, around the technology platform companies, around the questions of antitrust and the like, uh, as well as on the questions about encryption and the like. Uh, we'll be actually releasing a paper later today on TechLash, the backlash against technology companies, and on these questions of encryption. I know that uh, the congressman and David will be talking about these issues today. Um, and so we're very pleased uh, to have uh, all of you here with us today. Um, so with that, uh, David, I'd love to hand it over to you. Uh, Congressman, uh, obviously a leader on these issues, um, long, uh, long uh, serving the uh, one of the co-chairs of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, which issues report in March. Uh, and David, obviously uh, one of the leading reporters, about the leading reporter on national security and technology issues. Uh, so David, over to you. Uh, Congressman, thank you for being here. Um, and we really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jamil, and thank and and thanks to the congressman. Uh, congressman is um, um, wise enough to be up in his uh, beautiful territory of Rhode Island uh, today, uh, where I hope it is uh, cooler. Congressman, if you're wondering what you're missing in D.C., it's like 92 and complete humidity. So I'm, I'm sure you're really broken up about not being down here with us. Well, you'd be surprised to know, David, that I'm one of the few people. Uh, that actually likes uh, D.C. summers, uh, though I'm not there. I'm, I'm in district right now. It's still uh, in the upper 80s, close to 90 here in Iowa, but the humidity is not nearly as bad as what it is in D.C., yeah, yeah, I'm told. Good. Well, I'm um, uh, glad you're here, and we have lots to cover. Yeah. Um, let, me, um, let me just start with this interesting hearing that's going to uh, be beginning. It was supposed to have happened on Monday, and I had hoped uh, – that we'd be able to, to uh, talk about what we heard, but instead we're gonna have to anticipate a bit. So it's gonna be an odd moment where you're going to have the heads of each of the four biggest um, companies uh, in the, the tech world, uh, all testifying uh, at, uh, at the same time. I think their, their combined um, uh, uh, value is going to be is around five trillion dollars. So they're a huge part of the economy, and they're going to have to spend much of their time uh, talking about how they're not as big and fearsome as um, it would seem from looking at the numbers. But um, the bigger issue that has come up, apart from antitrust, as you read uh, the Solarium Commission report, your fascinating report that came out earlier this year is the degree to which they have actually succeeded or not succeeded um, at the national mission of trying to reduce the many forms of abuse 
uh, on the web and the many forms in which we've seen cyber attacks, information warfare and so forth. I'm sure that issue is going to come up as soon as your colleagues divert from the topic at hand, which is antitrust, which will probably be in about the first seven minutes of the, uh, of the hearing. Um, so uh, let's start there and tell me, as you came out of the solarium, um, what you concluded were both the lessons learned by the big tech companies coming out of 2016 and events since, and what hasn't been learned. Yeah, so we all recognize that these uh, new social media platforms are incredibly powerful tools for conveying uh, information uh, uh, and uh, communicating with a very broad uh, audience, and often in real time. And let's face it, the, the, uh, these platforms really have upended the, the traditional um, news media, uh, if you will. You know, we used to be, as you know, when we were growing up, you know, you got your source of news from uh, the, the local news on TV that night at six o'clock, uh, the, uh, the world news uh, or the, the, the local paper, right? And, um, and- uh, Hey, we were you know, still we, around and, back then. We've got 170 right. years of doing this. Right. <laughs> right, so, but I grew up in that era too, right? I got my first job as a paper boy. So uh, anyway, uh, aside from that, you know, now, um, because people get their, mainly the news from uh, their digital devices, whether it's an iPhone or an iPad or an Android device, uh, the computer, or what have you. And it's very, um, uh, people want it instantly. It, it very often it can be interactive since they're, uh, you're able to both request information uh, or uh, convey a thought, a reaction to the to, to news media and such. So powerful platforms. And they really, of course, these, platforms and the internet have transformed our economy. What we haven't figured out yet, uh, the, the, the government hasn't figured out yet and the, and the social media companies haven't figured out, is what is the right balance and, and what constitutes uh, responsible behavior in, in cyberspace and in terms of social media platforms, uh, posting news stories or opinion and you know, what becomes, uh, you know, when are you a publisher and when are you just a, a platform for, uh, for, for hosting uh, dialogue and allowing people or uh, companies or news entities to, to post uh, information articles. And that's something that we are gonna have to figure out as time goes on. Certainly it was not solved in the, in the Solarium uh, re uh, report. One of the things we did talk about though is um, building resilience into our democracy is going to require uh, more uh, education in, in civics, and uh, that's something that's that's essential. But also um, being able to uh, um, having building digital literacy into our uh, into that resilience as well, so that people understand that they need to fact check and get information from multiple sources, not just from one source. So that's kind of the biggest uh, takeaway from uh, from the Solari report, I guess I I would say, but. Uh, um, those are, that's the things that, that come to mind mainly. Um, so what do you expect here in this strange dynamic that we have coming uh, amidst this era of tech lash, as Jamil pointed out, where you're going to have the government on the one hand, perhaps pursuing antitrust uh, elements against these companies, on the other hand, trying to get 
a vastly different degree of cooperation in early detection of um, uh, attacks and so forth. We've already seen a good deal of that happen. You've seen Facebook and Twitter take down Russian groups, some other non-Russian groups as well. And then you have this third element, which is the suspicion, particularly from your conservative colleagues, that there is liberal bias in what they take down. And thus, you've seen the, the Twitter removal of some of the things that President Trump retweeted as recently as, as this weekend, which separate and apart from the content of the material, reinforces the, the argument that the conservatives have that uh, you see them doing this against President Trump, but you don't see them doing this against um, far left groups. Now, whether or not that's right or not, how are these three dynamics interacting to your mind? Yeah, a tough one because uh, it, it's about trying to strike the, 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 right, the right balance. And you, you know, there's, there's First Amendment protections of freedom of speech. And so uh, you don't want government being the, the arbiter of, you know, uh, of, of what should be uh, posted or not posted. And yet, at the same time, you know, these platforms are incredibly powerful and they convey, uh, allow this information to be conveyed. And at what point do you have to fact check what's out there? Somebody has to, has to do it. Hopefully it's not, of course, it can't be uh, government. It's going to be, I would think, and hopefully it's going to be the, the private sector, third party entities, whether it's the platform themselves or someone else, to be able to help people identify that the other side of the story it goes back to digital literacy. Uh, I will say that the, the tech clash, though, you know, the, the current relationship between the national security community and tech is not where it needs to be to solve our nation's most uh, pressing challenges. And really, that's unacceptable to me because the, you know, these are precisely the two groups that have uh, the, the requisite experience to, to solve them. So uh, obviously, technology is vital to, uh, to our economy. And, and we continue to have an economy that's where the envy of the world uh, and in large part due to the, the innovation uh, that, that we support. Um, but you know, uh, technology is, is uh, also vital to our, our national security. Uh, certainly in my role as chairman of uh, the Intelligence Emerging Threats and Capabilities uh, Subcommittee, I, I constantly um, uh, you know, say that it, much of my job is to make sure that our our, our soldiers never enter into a fair fight. And, and the, the, the two we have mutually reinforced uh, tech companies thrive uh, on our shores because uh, of our, our values and our network of allies that support and promote these values. Um, and, and improving the, the, the relationship uh, certainly won't be easy as, as both sides, uh, we have lost trust and, and, uh, and, uh, and they're retreated to their corners. But I will say that, that this hope, uh, one uh, recent initiative that, uh, that, uh, that I uh, use as a positive example is the National Security Commission on AI. Um, it was a perfect no, but, um, but it was a collaborative effort uh, that leveraged both you know, the disparate um, uh, expertise to offer uh, some creative ideas. And I just, in, in ending this, you know, just say, I, you know, I hope to see more endeavors like this that will uh, incrementally improve the relationship here rather than looking for the perfect uh, solution you know, right out of the gate. This, this is an ongoing discussion and, and neither group is going anywhere. So we need to really work 
on a on on, on a reconstructive coexistence, if you will. Right. So, Congressman, let me drill down on that a little bit further because you made the point that uh, on your uh, committee you want to make sure the U.S. American soldiers don't enter into a fair fight. Reasonable enough. And if you were serving on that committee in the 1950s, um, you wouldn't have had any pushback from the what we now call the defense industrial base, right? And there was no question that IBM in the 50s and 60s, through their federal systems division, was going to do whatever it was that the U.S. government ordered up, and that Raytheon would, and that McDonnell Douglas would, and so forth. So skip forward to um, the Project Maven experience where Google employees said, not us, we're not going to be a piece of this. Um, to cases where Microsoft has said, we will be, we will help the U.S. government along, but we will judge along the way whether the technology is being used in ways that we consider acceptable. Um, probably Amazon has been the most cooperative with the U.S. government, I would say, which is that now, obviously, they're doing the cloud work for uh, the CIA. They competed and lost, though it's still in protest for the Pentagon. But their general view has been, we will do what the U.S. government, they're, they're sort of more of an old school view. Um, why have we seen this change? Is it merely that most of their customers are overseas? Is it a part of a broader societal distrust of how the government is going to be using technology for both intelligence and military purposes? What's your diagnosis? What was the Solarium's diagnosis? Yeah, so, you know, I, I can tell you that um, th there is uh, it's certainly a, a tension between, yeah, the, the, the private sector and government, the employees that work at all these companies and, and their customers. And, and uh, yeah, we, you know, we need to be mindful uh, of, that, of, that, of that challenge. Um, but I, I will say that um, there has to be a way forward, you know, and you know, some of it may come through technology, others are gonna come through, uh, through dialogue. Uh, and I don't, I don't pretend to have uh, the answer, but you know, we, need to, we need to work harder at, uh, at getting to a, a, a solution. Um, because technology is not, not going away, right? It's only gonna get more complex, especially as AI and machine learning, uh, and uh, it goes forward. And, we need to make sure that we're we're thinking about these things as a forethought rather than afterthought, you know, especially on the on the AI uh, part of it. Um, uh, ranking member Stefanik, my, my ranking member on the subcommittee that I chair, uh, we led a number of initiatives on on AI, uh, including a uh, basically a, a steering committee within DoD uh, to strategize where to make investments in emerging technology and assess. Emerging threats, and when I note that uh, emerging tech includes all uh, sorts of, uh, uh, of, of course, fun things beyond a, uh, AI. Uh, we also need to be cognizant of the, you know developing the workforce and, and instilling ethics in whatever uh, AI programming uh, uh, occurs. So um, this is going to be an ongoing uh, effort that we're going to be have to be keep front and center. Let me um, turn you uh, a little bit to um, some more modern um, uh, issues of the election and sort of where we would transfer the lessons from the solarium to that. So um, since the 2016 election, we've had, of course, the Senate Intelligence Committee's uh, reports has been 
similar um, studies done in the house, lots of private groups, lots of journalists, myself included, spent a lot of time on this. And so as we enter the 2020 um, election cycle, tell me what it is based on the solarium uh, discussions you've had and others that you are concerned about most. What do you think it is that we've addressed well since 2016 and what we haven't addressed well? Well, clearly uh, we are uh, much more aware of what our enemies and adversaries are up to in terms of disrupt uh, our, our elections. And we don't have to, not only do we have to need to worry about securing our elections themselves uh, and the, the equipment and uh, or the voter registration systems uh, to make sure that we protect the integrity of the systems. But, uh, but also we are uh, aware that uh, our enemies and adversaries are uh, using our, our social media platforms and our uh, values of, of, of freedom of speech, uh, democracy uh, a, a against us by stoking divisions and, and, and things of that nature. So uh, we, we were caught off guard in 2016. 2018, we were much better prepared and we had a plan for, for pushback. And we're doing the same thing now in, uh, uh, in, in 2020. So, um, uh, you know, there's a, certainly a, a, a broad recognition among uh, Solarium uh, commissioners uh, that uh, on the information warfare front, uh, we are even further behind the, you know, the, the maturity curve, uh, if, if you will. And uh, so that needs to be a major uh, point of emphasis. But, uh, you know, it's a bit beyond Solarium's um, uh, uh, you know, total scope of what we were doing, but it was uh, certainly part of it. So uh, let me uh, push a little harder on that. You said that in 2018, the U.S. pushed back. And what the U.S. has said publicly is that I think the NSA uh, and, and Cyber Command Director General Nakasone um, uh, said uh, publicly that uh, we worked to shut down the Internet Research Agency for a number of days right around the midterm elections, not only before and during, but after in case they would try to go influence a, a complex recount. Uh, we know that they uh, sent warnings out to Russian intelligence officers and so forth. So spin forward to 2020, the Russians are laying out a different playbook. They're operating more from inside US servers because they know that uh, that limits the NSA and Cyber Command's ability to operate against them because they, they're not allowed to operate inside the United States. Uh, they are putting more of their information operations into the hands of, um, of ordinary Americans, hoping that they will repeat it so that they don't get caught in the inauthentic characters way that Facebook was cutting people out for, you know, pretending that they were your neighbor in Rhode Island, and in fact, they were um, sending out their propaganda from uh, uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, that would be St. Petersburg, Russia, not Florida. Um, so um, do we believe uh, right now that uh, NSA is actively pushing back? Uh, you saw yesterday they made a few announcements to try to reveal um, some cyber operators from Russia, but uh, is it your sense that they are they are effectively pushing back now? So you, we have to be cognizant of the fact that this can't all be uh, 
just about actions of U.S. Cyber Command, although they are a, a key part of this. And uh, so I, you know, applaud their work. And I believe in this new, more forward-leaning strategy of uh, defend forward, or as Chris Inglis likes to say, uh, uh, defend early. And so certainly I know that, um, that in the 2018 elections, again, being all better prepared, and, and there was more of a whole of nation approach to pushing back on the Russians, uh, I would have liked to see additional things done that weren't done more on the, on the diplomatic front and more State Department involvement and more imposing sanctions and uh, such. But um, using all assets of national power is, is really uh, very important. Um, so, uh, and definitely the uh, U.S. Cyber Command, I, I know, uh, imposed what we call operational friction on our, on our adversaries. So going after, if it's, whether it's going after groups like the uh, Internet Research Agency or uh, entities specific in the, in the, the Russian government, you know, all those things are going to have to be fair game. And we have to recognize one of the real challenges. It's not just, a, as you pointed out, uh, government on government actions. Uh, the Russians uh, have been very uh, crafty and, uh, and it's very nefarious by employing outside groups uh, to do their, their dirty work for them. Uh, or as you pointed out, you know, being involved here in the United States so that they can make it look like uh, it's coming from uh, a legitimate um, uh, activist group or individual. So that the cover of uh, freedom of speech and, and these are things that, that certainly we need to be cognizant of and, and trying to figure out what is the, the, the right balance and how do we, we push back on this? Again, staying within the, the bounds of protecting freedom of speech and privacy and, and all, the, all the rest. But I, I will say this, in terms of what we need to do on the government side to get better organized, this is where you need a national cyber director uh, in the executive office of the president that is Senate confirmed, that has policy and budgetary authority, can both Look across to see what uh, what um, what government is doing to strengthen our cybersecurity posture, uh, but also uh, look outside how we're liaising with the with, with states and municipalities and the private sector, so that we have a coordinated response to uh, election security uh, intrusions from from outside entities, and and also planning. That's another thing that you need a national cyber director to help coordinate uh, planning. So. And, and response, so that uh, not it's not just a one-off, but we're doing, I think we're doing a good job of getting ready to protect, protect the 2020 elections. Not perfect, but we're getting better. We, uh, we did in 2018, the lessons learned of what well, will be applied to 2020. Uh, and Congress is providing support in, in financial dollars to secure elections. But obviously me, more needs to be done. Right, so um, uh, you, I know that one of your strategies coming out of the Solarium report was to go get as many of those recommendations as you could tucked into the um, National Defense Authorization Act, because that's the one bill actually does actually have to be signed, right? And uh, among them was your idea of having the Senate confirmed cyber position in the White House. I know that's in the House uh, bill. Um, what has happened uh, to that? Uh, generally, I, it doesn't appear to, at least the last time I looked, to be in the Senate version. Is this going to happen? So I, I believe it is going to happen. Uh, certainly, I know that Senator King uh, and Senator Sass and uh, Senator Ron Johnson are supportive of the, the issue of a, um, 
uh, of a national cyber director that is Senate confirmed. So it made it through, as you pointed out, uh, in the House NDAA, and uh, and now we've got to fight to keep it in the uh, in the, um, the, the this in the final version when we, we go to conference. So um, actually, the uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee also has a hearing on the National Cyber Director uh, next week. So we're going to be able to air many more of these uh, these recommendations. Uh, you know, that that particular recommendation going forward. But, um, it's getting significant momentum. Uh, I, I've been in discussions uh, with the White House about this, and uh, I, I hope that uh, that we will see some some movement. So, uh, but um, you know, I, I'm hoping there that the White House is going to come around to our way of thinking, but I, I can't speak for them. Mm-hmm. Um. How about the other major recommendations of the solarium? Are you seeing that those are being um, accepted into the NDAA or have another pathway to implementation? As Hugh and I discussed a few months ago, the, the bane of big congressional um, uh, efforts like this one is that people put enormous effort into the set of recommendations and then they all get shelved. Yeah, and I can tell you that that was something that we were bound to determine that that would not happen right from the very first Solaria meeting that uh, we did not want to spend all this time and effort uh, creating out this overarching architecture to better protect the country's cyberspace from cyber events of significant uh, uh, consequence and and then have it sit on a shelf somewhere. And so we were determined that our proposals would be, we would think of it in terms of putting them into legislative proposals at the end of the day, and we did. We came up with some 55 proposals, and and we had 22 of them that were incorporated into the House NDAA. So uh, again, the National Cyber Director was included in there. Also, the Joint uh, Cyber Planning Office was included. The Joint Collaborative Environment, uh, the the Threat Hunting and Information Sharing uh, across the DIB networks was included. Uh, uh, integrated uh, Cyber Center at CISA and also uh, the study on the creation of a cyber reserve force and also codifying the, uh, the, the cyber risk management agencies for critical infrastructure. Um, and uh, last one I'll mention is allowing CISA to issue uh, administrative subpoenas to ISPs to identify uh, and warn entities of, of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So to get 22 recommendations, those are some of the highlights. Um, but uh, you know, one of the one of the big ones uh, I'll I'll go back. I mentioned it is the uh, the integrated uh, cyber center at, um, at at CISA. You know, we need to make sure that uh, that there's a a, a a joint cyber planning entity uh, also that that helps to coordinate uh, sharing government information with private sector and private sector with government. And so we created this concept of. Uh, systemically important critical infrastructure, and it would be a new social contract with with these these entities, so that uh, so that if they were if it was it, when you think about systemically important critical infrastructure, you think of a, a significant cyber event happening to a company, and it's not just that the company has a bad day, but if the company were were hacked and something happened, that the country would have a bad day. So you think of uh, the electric grid and a major uh, electric uh, provider. 
uh, or a, uh, the financial services sector or telecommunications. Those type of entities where the country would have a bad day if they ever went down, those we want to have a, a new social contract with those companies. Uh, government would be would share more information, and 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 they would be working more side by side, so you can put context to what each is seeing on on both sides. But it would also require the these companies to do more on the security front, and if they did that, again, they would have this benefit of being characterized characterized as a systemically important critical infrastructure. Um. Let me talk a little bit uh, more about that, because on the critical infrastructure side, this is probably the area where the most progress has been made. If you had to ask me, coming out of the work on The Perfect Weapon, uh, my, my book from two years ago, which industries sort of woke up the most and earliest, I would say it would probably be the utilities and the financial sector, um, both yeah. of whom had so much to lose. Um, along the way. Um, and yet, when we look at the kinds of attacks that are continuing, um, there are still significant weak links. You know, Con Edison in New York has got a lot more money to go spend on securing the network than a small utility out west. So um, tell me a little bit about what it is that you have, have seen across the board in this infrastructure um, hardening effort? Yeah, so um, you know, it, it, it initially, when I first started doing the deep dive on cybersecurity, everybody that I talked to was say in the, in the utility sector, that's where I kind of started on this when I became aware of the, the vulnerabilities that existed uh, whereby a, a utility could be taken down through a, a SCADA attack by remotely putting a, some malware into the, the, the logic generator, the computer SCADA system. And um, and everybody said, yeah, that could happen, but we, we've taken steps to make sure that it won't, and we're, we're pretty good here. And, and uh, that was clearly not the case. You know, fast forward to now, you know, the, 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 uh, the electric utility sector, and especially the, the, the financial uh, sector, has, has stepped up their game and are and are much better off where they than where they were say a, a, more than a decade ago. But we still have uh, more work to be done, and uh, you know we, we need to look at uh, certainly cybersecurity enablers uh, as um, as doing more. I want the ISPs really to, to step up and do more. I, I'm envious of what has been accomplished in Great Britain with their cybersecurity center, and they have. Um, a much closer relationship between government and and uh, their private sector, and they do require more of their internet security providers because they see a lot of this this bad traffic that's going back and forth. Uh, so we need to make sure that we're we're asking more, requiring more of these cybersecurity enablers, and uh, and I believe that you know, that's one of the findings in the report. And I hope that again it goes into building resilience into our system. Let me ask you about one specific incident we've seen in the past few months or we've heard about in the past few months. Uh, I don't know if you've been briefed on it beyond what we've um, seen publicly. So um, until now, most of the concern about the uh, electric grid has been focused on Russia. And I think Department of Homeland Security has been very public about their concern about Russian malware in the grid. And I've written about U.S. efforts to counter that by putting U.S. malware in the Russian grid. 
But in recent times, we've seen um, some transformers brought in from China, which the US government was concerned actually had firmware built into them that could turn over control to the Chinese. And uh, it went beyond the normal kind of software vulnerabilities that you and I have talked about so many times before. Is this a new approach? Is this a new way into this kind of problem? Uh, and is it something that you think the U.S. government's on top of? You saw the president issue a, a bulk power executive order just a few months ago uh, to try to limit the foreign dependent, uh, U.S. dependence on foreign bulk power supply. Well, this goes into the, you know, I guess the most broadly speaking about supply chain and making sure that our uh, supply chain is is more secure. Uh, you know, it, it, and that's the, we talk about you know building resilience into our uh, into our systems. We need to make sure that uh, that they're more uh, resilient, and it, that if the bad guys do get in, that uh, they're uh, they don't get much. Uh, maybe because data has been encrypted, for example, or that they can reconstitute uh, uh, more more quickly. Uh, but you know, that that's certainly something that is is top of mind, and and uh, yeah, we want to make sure that. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the a lot of the hacks that happen, it's not you know a brute force attack through the front door. It's you know getting in somewhere where there's a weak link, weak point, and then they move sideways. You think of the target hack that occurred years ago. Uh, they didn't come through targets, uh, cyber defenses, and uh, the the firewalls that they had put in place, and all the measures they put in place to to protect their network. They came in through the HVAC contractor, right? And they once they were in, they they moved sideways. So um, you need to build resilience in. You certainly want to want to make it more difficult to, for the for the adversary to get in. But if they do get in, you want to limit what what they can get in. If they do get something, or if they take your system down, you want to be able to reconstitute uh, more quickly. So you know, backing up your systems or figuring out what uh, and that goes to you know more broadly continuity of the economy. That was a finding. Uh, that was a uh, a recommendation in the Slayer report that we have to prioritize what is uh, most critical. Uh, if it does go down, what do we need to reconstitute quickly? How do we prioritize? Again, a role that the National Cyber Director would play in helping to ensure we are exercising that and, uh, and prioritizing uh, what needs to be done. You'll remember that in the 2016 elections, uh, the uh, US election system had never actually been named uh, to be critical, part of critical infrastructure. And yeah. that um, when the Obama administration went about trying to go do that, or uh, the director of uh, Homeland Security at the time, Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, uh, tried to go do it, he got a lot of pushback. So spin forward four years, um, we still have infrastructure issues around the election system, but now we have the added complication that a big swath of America is going to be voting from um, paper ballots from home that look a lot like absentee ballots, even if they are not absentee. Um, good news about that is you've got a paper backup. Bad news about that is you are more reliant than ever on the security of the registration system. Because if the registration system is off, I may not be getting my ballot or it might be uh, the system may believe that I'm uh, living in another state or a group of 
Russian hackers may have gotten in to make it appear that I'm living in a Russian, uh, in another state. Um, so talk a little bit about your concerns there, especially as somebody who, of course, is running for re-election in the midst of all of this. So this one hits particularly close to home as a former Secretary of State. Yep. And, uh, and so I you know, care deeply about certainly our integrity of our election systems, uh, the equipment. Uh, I, when I was Secretary of State, we had the oldest voting machines in the country. And uh, I led a commission to, to look at alternative voting systems and what was out there. And at the time, you know, this is you know, 25 years ago uh, or more, uh, you know, I'm a technology guy, so certainly I was enamored with the, the touchscreen technology and how cool that would be and how modern it was. But the one thing that really bothered me, it's, you know, it was in the back of my mind, is what happens if the lights go out, the uh, data gets lost, how do you ever reconstitute that election? And without a paper ballot, you just can't. So the system we put in back then, uh, it was optical scan. And it's the same basically concept that we use today and really that's recommended for all states around the country. So you, you, you really need to have a paper ballot as the, the ultimate order trail. Um, I will say going on to the voter registration system, um, you know, the, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, the, the, the voting system is where it gets a lot of attention. So we need to make sure obviously that, 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 the, that the systems are, um, strong, they're easy to defend, and, and the, the, the integrity of the vote is protected. But it also goes to the, uh, the issue of um, the voter registration systems as well. All it takes is for the Russians to get into, say, one or two systems and corrupt it, or, or even, even the perception that, uh, that they may have put in, and you're undermining the integrity of the, the system writ large. So you, know, you pointed out uh, how it was slow for, say, the Department of Homeland Security or for states to embrace the idea of election systems as critical infrastructure. Uh, but they are. And all that does, it means that they are now priority customers for the Department of Homeland Security, where, if asked, can bring federal resources and support to state and local governments who do not have the resources to protect against a nation state attack or involvement. But we're 98 uh, so, days. We're 98 days away. Right, uh, right. You're not going to bring many federal resources to bear between now and election day. It's already happening. It's it's and it's been happening. So, uh, you know, what I like to see more again. It, it really does depend on each state and locality because I I do believe that states and and local uh, of canvassers and local election officials should be running elections, not the federal government. And federal government is not trying to run the elections, but. Again, the, the cities and, and communities can't be expected to defend against uh, nation-state involvement or interference. But again, they have to ask for the support many have. And the Congress has provided money to secure election systems. Uh, not enough. Uh, we did more in the, uh, uh, in the latest COVID aid packages that we've put forward. And, uh, but it, it, we're probably talking about another 2 or $3 billion that needs to be made available to states, municipalities, to make sure that we have the most secure election systems. Great. Well, we have a few questions that uh, have begun to um, come in uh, from some of those who've been listening in. So while this has been great fun, I feel um, uh, obligated to go um, share my share my, my joy in this with a couple of, of our uh, 
folks who have been uh, listening into this. So um, let me give you the first one of these uh, from uh, one of our participants. National security benefits are diffuse, but the costs of developing these technologies are pretty specific. Uh, venture capitalists don't want to fund technology that enhances national security. So how do you direct national resources to startups, most of which will fail or go to zero and thus become you know, a big political liability? so that you have innovation in this, in this space. Uh, the, our um, our uh, participant notes that the State Department's GEC Information Access Fund, for example, has not been very useful in this, in this uh, space. So uh, a couple of things I would, let me, let me start with the earliest uh, part of it, and that's strong support for research and development funding. Uh, the um, I, just uh, you know by way of example, uh, you look at what's happening right now in 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 COVID uh, and in our response. We're hearing about the vaccine development and and also um, uh, antivirals that are being developed. Well, the first vaccine that underwent human trials and is now in the third stage uh, came from DARPA funding, uh, and uh, you. Know, Basically, all the ingredients are made in the U.S. and um, and uh, uh, also the portable, portable ventilator uh, that DARPA first funded in, in 2011. Uh, small defense contractors have also, uh, you know, pivoted to new equipment, fever detection, and cameras, and quickly, you know, quick drying face masks. Uh, the, the number of the, the point is is that, and uh, also in in our mark in uh, my subcommittee. Uh, we restored over six hundred uh, million dollars in uh, R and D funding that had been cut by the administration. So we need to invest in R and D upfront. That being said, we also need to think outside the box and in involving the private sector in taking advantage of their uh, their technologies. You know, we're we're all familiar with SBIR funding. Uh, Dr. Griffin and uh, his group looking at a new model for uh, having more awards. Uh, but lower dollar amounts just to get, say, non-traditional companies to, uh, to, um, to talk to DOD and, and try to connect them with the services so that they might be able to bring their innovative technologies to the warfighter more quickly. So I absolutely believe, and, and those of you who think about InQtel is another great model, uh, great, great, great model. So um, all of these things involved a, a, a Private sector involvement, working with government, and you know, hand in hand to try to try to outthink the bad guys and and give us that innovation technological advantage that we need. Okay, very good. Um, let me go to um, another question that we've um, had from this, and this actually goes back to the example I gave you of the Chinese um, uh, uh, transformers that were coming in. The question was. How can we ensure that computer firmware of critical systems are cyber secure and were not manipulated during production when manufactured overseas or during the supply chain and logistics phase? Because let's face it, we're not going to be able to manufacture all this stuff in the United States. Wouldn't necessarily be an efficient use of our resources, even if we could. Um, yet you have a, a really good example, I think, in this Chinese case of firmware that may have actually been manipulated. 
Yeah, so um, there's def- no such thing as perfect security. That's why resilience needs to be uh, uh, built into the system as well. But to go you know, early on, supply chain security is essential. Uh, DOD is stepping it up with the, the um, cybersecurity maturity model, uh, CMMC, and, uh, and we're, we're trying to back it up as much as, as we can. Um, I, I would also uh, talk about uh, in the, in the, the, the software, uh, making sure that there's uh, liability uh, 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 responsibility in the early stages uh, of, uh, of product development. Right now, there's definitely a, there's a, there's a competition to be first to market as opposed to being secure to market. And so we've tried to change that dynamic and, and making sure that, uh, um, that the end user has a mechanism to hold uh, the final goods assemblers uh, accountable with, uh, with, with is, is liability. Uh, on the part of the final goods assembler, so that if they're going to sell a product and there's a known vulnerability, uh, that they need to be uh, held responsible yeah, well, if something bad happens. You know, when um, Jameer first introduced us, he mentioned uh, encryption as a topic that we turn to, and we, we haven't uh, yet, but what you just were saying on supply chain raises a really interesting question. So we've been caught in this dynamic between law enforcement, uh, Attorney General Barr, others, all calling for a legal access means into um, encrypted systems. And yet, if you look at the encrypted systems that many Americans are turning to, they are quite deliberately designed outside the United States. I mean, Signal operates from Switzerland, and the servers are in Switzerland. And if you wanted to have legal access to it, I think Signal's answer would be, Terrific. Good luck in the Swiss courts on that. Um, how do you see this being resolved? I, I don't detect, and maybe I'm too cynical here, any progress on this debate in the past four years. Yep, and, and it's a tough one. We did touch on the issue of encryption and de- debated it briefly in the Cybersecurity Commission, but it was clearly beyond our scope and ability to uh, to, to solve that, that, that debate. Um, look, my short answer here is that from a security perspective, it, 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 if we undermine methods of encryption, uh, as many fear the Justice Department will do, uh, if allowed, uh, it would compromise privacy and security to an inappropriate uh, extent. So, and it would worsen know, our cybersecurity. I mean, it would undercut right. exactly what you say you're trying to prevent from China, that, Russia... North Korea right. and Iran. Yeah, because a- any effort to create backdoors for the good guys will invariably create uh, backdoors for the bad guys. So the, the you know, because you know, the, the challenge that uh, that law enforcement uh, faces in, in the uh, cybersphere, like uh, child uh, 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 exploitation, are immense and extremely troubling. And, and we need to be exploring ways to, to deter these abhorrent practices. Uh, but weakening encryption is not the way to go uh, about it. And so it's likely going to be more of a technology solution than it is a, it, you know, coming up with some way of having a, a, a backdoor. Uh, but because if you, if you weaken uh, encryption, first of all, it's cheap and easy uh, to, to, to get. And people will just 
you know, get it from, from overseas anyway. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to just. And you're not going to ban. Your, you're not right. going to ban all foreign apps that give right. you encryption, right? Exactly. And so again, I, I, after looking at this debate and and weighing it through, I, I'm a, I am a believer that if you if you have a broad based, you know, uh, a, a key that somebody can just uh, unlock it when uh, they they need to, then it's not just the good guys that don't get access to that; it's the bad guys as well that want to use encryption overall. Right. Terrific. And I think we had uh, one more um, uh, question here, which I'm just trying to, uh, to call up. Uh, hold on just one sec. So I get to the ones that have come in here. Um, one of our participants asks, um, as we look at innovation, it's no longer um, led and centralized by large companies, but instead distributed among multiple startups. So what do you think is being uh, done to take, uh, to adopt to this shift and include these smaller companies into the process of supporting future technological efforts? Um, you touched on this a little bit before, but do you see an organized effort, particularly within DOD to do this? Yeah, and, and, I'm, and I'm pushing that. I, I, I'm a bit believer that um, if, if we can use uh, commercial off-the-shelf technologies uh, wherever possible, we need to incentivize uh, the, the private sector, these smaller companies to develop their technologies. We need to get it uh, onto DOD's radar, get it into the hands of the warfighter, uh, or other areas of government, not just, not just uh, DOD, but that's my lane. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and so, but I, I'm a believer that we should be taking, we should be able to leverage and take advantage of private sector innovation wherever possible. Um, and, that way we can focus on when there are specific needs that are exquisite programs that need to be developed specific to, uh, to government, that we, we narrow that lane and only do it really when, when necessary. So it's a win-win all the way around. But government can't, doesn't have the agility to move as, as quickly as, and won't innovate as quickly as the private sector. There may be times where we have to, it has to be a government-specific solution, but otherwise we should be taking advantage of leveraging the private sector innovation there at technology base wherever possible. And a last one for you uh, from uh, Paula Doyle says, um, Russia and China have collected vast PII on U.S. national security professionals. Uh, and um, uh, I'm sure that um, uh, you have seen uh, some of that in the, uh, the hack of OPM, the Office of Personnel Management. Uh, which was Chinese in base. Uh, they've stolen U.S. intellectual property on critical industrial and national security assets. They're acting on these data. And the U.S. acts at times as if we're um, weak and unwilling to punch back. Why are these steps so hard? Um, as you answer that, I mean, I think you could argue this administration has punched back pretty hard on the Chinese, not very hard on the Russians particularly, but um, walk through the, the, the difference. So I will say that we need to push back hard uh, wherever possible, but also make it more difficult for the bad guys to get back in, to get in the first place. And if they do get in, that they don't get much. So uh, you, you talked about OPM. Well, uh, there's an example where, uh, why we need a national cyber director, because departments and agencies uh, have their various other missions. Cybersecurity is, is not their primary mission, right? You need somebody with their eyes on the ball. 
over at OPM. Nobody was looking yet. They didn't realize they, they, the value of the data they were charged with protecting. They had old antiquated systems. And, and uh, even though they'd been told that they need to upgrade them to you know, defend them and modernize them more and uh, innovate more, they, they, they didn't do it. And so it was probably one of the biggest intelligence coups. Uh, China stole that data and it's gonna uh, damage our national security uh, both now and, and decades to come, especially with uh, AI and machine learning and connecting those dots. It's done uh, untold damage to our national security, which Trump and, and and yet you did not see the Obama administration or the Trump administration sort of connect the dots for Americans and explain that the OPM hack, the Marriott hack, the hack of Anthem uh, Healthcare, um, the uh, more recent hacks uh, that you've seen of Equifax all had a connection as they build together that database to use for AI purposes. Why is it that it was so difficult for the US government to just sort of step out and explain the strategy here? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I was one of the, I was the first one to call for the, the firing of the director of, uh, of OPM in, in the first place and, and the director was, uh, was removed. Um, but beyond that, look, the, the we, we are getting more and more um, aware of the challenges that we face and taking stronger actions. I applaud and support the, the administration's um, more forward-leaning strategy, uh, NSPM 13, uh, basically the defend forward strategy uh, that, uh, that U.S. Cyber Command is involved with and, and in other areas of, of government. But here's why having a whole of nation, whole of government approach is so Vitally important. It's not just about U.S. Cyber Command or about CISA. It's also about the State Department and using all assets of national power, both to communicate to those entities that are targeting us that uh, that they better knock it off or we're going to take action, and then following it up with uh, with action. And 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 sanctions are are need to be on the table uh, or other or other type of aggressive action uh, causing what General Nakasone likes to call uh, operational friction on the, uh, the, the enemy and the adversary. So those things are happening, not enough though on the international stage. And you know, the one thing that's been, been lacking here on, on um, deal with Russia, for example, is that the president and the president pushing back hard uh, and, and being the, the focal point for telling Russia to knock it off or imposing uh, broader sanctions or other issues. And, and by the way, we understand that espionage is gonna happen, right? That's not gonna go away. But when you cross certainly, certainly some certain bounds and you violate international norms, we need to work more closely with our partners and our allies to call it out and to move to punish it more quickly. So um, I, I, I think of uh, um, some of the actions that have taken place you know, recently, certainly the uh, when Obama uh, indicted those Chinese individuals that were about to uh, put more sanctions in place uh, because of Chinese uh, espionage, and then that led to that historic agreement between Obama and President Xi. Now, uh, to, to, to cut things back, and uh, I, I, well, I, I understand, I'm not naive to think that it totally stopped uh, Chinese. No, it worked uh, briefly, and then it moved things off to the intelligence channel, yeah. So, again, we need to do more and we need to work with our allies and partners to call out cyber bad behavior and take action. Uh, in the same way that it, you're, not gonna have, you're never gonna have perfect information, perfect intelligence, 
But intelligence is about connecting the dots. And when you connect enough dots, you get a clear enough picture, you need to be able to act. You think of on another unrelated topic, the Sweepal um, uh, poisoning that took place in, in, in Great Britain, where you know, we didn't have perfect information to say that it was the Russians uh, that, that did it, but enough dots were created, uh, connected, that finally the, you know, the, the Allies got together and said, it was the Russians, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to impose XYZ sanctions for this specific, specific reason. So you need to be able to connect the dots, call it out, call out bad behavior and punish it. Otherwise, it loses its path. Great. Well, we're not out of questions, but we are out of time, Congressman. So I thank you very much for uh, another great uh, conversation with you. And uh, I'm going to um, uh, go back to uh, Jamil to uh, uh, close this out. So thanks again. Great. And it's been great being with you. Thanks, David, and thank you, Congressman, for your time. Thank you to all the else for sticking with us. I know we're a little past time, but really appreciate y'all being here. What a great conversation covering topics from encryption to innovation, elections, antitrust, IP theft, the platforms, information warfare. I can't imagine that in an hour we could have gotten so much quality information. I want to note, by the way, that we have on the line with us today uh, during this whole session senior leaders and senior staff from DIU, SSCI, ODNI, uh, leaders of the venture capital community, federal judges, uh, FSISAC, the Solarium Commission, I mean, you name it, CEOs of multiple cyber companies. What a great audience. So really making an impact here. I just want to note a couple of future events for people as you're dropping off. Um, August 5th at 1 p.m., uh, our first kickoff event for the rise of China with Michelle Flournoy, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense uh, for Policy, and Ali Velshi of MSNBC. August 13th at 1 p.m., we'll have our second event of this series on TechLash and Antitrust, including folks like Randy Milch, the former GC of Verizon, Aaron Hughes, former DASI Cyber, uh, and another, and, and uh, Sam Ravitch from the Solarium Commission, uh, Nilo Furhawa from, from RSA. Um, we're about to publish a paper today on TechLash National Security. Please keep an eye out for that. Look at our website at nationalsecurity.gmu.gov. Thank you all. Have a great day. And again, Congressman and David, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.